I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 10 of Beauty Bosses. I am so excited about today's guest. I'm so excited to be here, Yay. thank you. We have the beautiful, amazing, talented, brilliant Jill Kargman. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. This you is fun. guys have probably all heard of Jill Kargman because who hasn't? Um, but she is an American people. writer, <laughs> New York Times best-selling writer, I should say. She's an actor. Um, she's an all-around hilarious person and extremely talented in so many different areas. And she's always working on new projects. Right now you have a radio show, you're writing, you're acting, you're, you have your hands in every, every single different pot I can think of. Um, so I can't wait to chat with you today. Me too. This is so great. Thanks for coming. So I wanted to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about some of the projects that are most important to you that you're working on right now? Um, well, right now, I feel like it's hanging out with the kids because, you know, for three years when I was shooting Odd Mom Out, I was kind of a dude. Like, I only saw them on the weekends. I had each one rotate and come to have dinner with me on set, but I was basically gone before they woke up. I left at 4.45 in the morning, and I came home at 10 at night. So I didn't see them oh my Monday God. to Friday. I, they would kind of circulate into my day or if I had like a scene I wasn't shooting I would go pick them up and then run back to set I mean it was crazy that's grueling it was grueling but it was so much fun and you know it was really hard but to be able to start a second career at 39 was awesome well so let's talk about odd mom out for a second and then we'll get back to the future projects question but odd mom out is one of my favorite shows really of all time thanks serious that means so much coming from you because you're super mom with Six. Yeah, well, it should also tell you that, that I felt like an odd mom out also. But um, odd mom out for the uninitiated was this amazing, hilarious show on Bravo that but was scripted. Kind scripted. of a set. Yeah, it was scripted. Bravo, I'm always like, oh, it sounds like a reality person. No, and it's I'm not, not a reality. No, person. I mean, I don't even know why I'm explaining it because I feel like everybody watched it. But it it's sort of a send up of life in New York City and specifically the Upper East Side. So can you kind of explain a little bit about the motivation behind creating Odd Mom Out and what it meant to you? Yeah, well, I had a book called Momzilla's. Uh, it was a novel of mine and. NBC had optioned it, and all my books have been optioned and none have been made. So I was sort of like giving up on the TV front. And then I had a meeting with Andy Cohen, who was head of Bravo at the time, and he was talking about, you know, maybe working together in the reality space, and I was like, no fucking way. Like, I'm super <laughs> flattered, but I will not have a camera up my asshole. I just, it's not my thing. It's too much, right? It's too much. It's just not my thing. And I said, like, I don't, you know, the whole way that they produce the reality shows are very highly produced they say with like cat fights and all this shit and drama that's not for me and he's like what if we do like something different that's more comedy-ish that's you and I said look I'm a writer I don't want to be in a reality show I'm I'm not like that interesting I'd rather create something and NBC the parent company of Bravo owns this novel of mine so can you read it so I dropped it off for him and Lara Spots, who was his other head honcho there, and then 
they decided we should pursue this together and they were going to branch into scripted, but they weren't planning on scripted comedy, just drama. So it was great. It was kind of like the wild, wild west and I'll never have that experience again because they left me alone. I barely got any notes. Lara quit her job to become my showrunner and I, I can't imagine a better working relationship. So it was really fun. It was, it was almost like this weird fluky thing like while no one was looking we got to make the show for three years. And, it, and by the way, you were so involved in it because if I'm explaining this correctly, you created the show, you wrote the show, and you started the show. Yeah. So did you do anything? I did not did direct. You, did, yeah. I did okay. not direct. I'm, I never want to direct. It's so okay. funny you hear actors being like, what I really want to do is direct. Like, I would rather eat my spleen than direct. I think that's like the worst job What's ever. What's so hard about directing? I think it's not so much hard as tedious. There's a lot of technical lighting things and you have to do these like um, storyboards and all this shit that I wouldn't want to do. It just seems more labor intensive than creative sometimes, even though ultimately it is shaped by the director. Um, I trust our directors though. I just would rather farm that out and focus on the writing first and then just acting and having fun in it and, and not worrying about having 150 people reporting to me. Yeah, I could I could understand that that's like it's its own ball of wax. Yeah. yeah. Um, so for someone who hasn't seen Odd Mom Out, who's not from New York City, how would you explain the show to them? I would say it's not so much about parenting as it has the word mom in it, which is a little scary to people who aren't parents. But I would tell them that fifty one percent of the audience is not parents. It's more about keeping and They're up. never going to become parents. They're never. I know. People show. go like straight to the mastectomy <laughs> clinic. Um, yeah, they're like putting a Dyson up their uterus. I think it makes some aspects of parenting look scary, but it also reaffirms that like you just do it your fucking way. You make your own rules. Like at the end of the pilot where we have our own little underwear dance party, like I've always done kooky my own way of doing things. I never read books on parenting. I never, you know, try to study what's... I just had a really happy, great childhood, so I'm just sort of replicating it. I think, you know, if you were super fucked up and you need guidance, great. That's what those are for. But I wasn't just, like, going to every parenting lecture and following some set of rules. I just followed my gut. Yeah. What are some quirks of raising kids on the Upper East Side that someone wouldn't necessarily get if they weren't from around here? Well, I think no matter where you're from, there's shit like this. It's just the metric shifts from town to town. It might be like hockey or cheerleading or like whatever, how big your igloo is. I don't know. But in New York, a lot of focus is around schools and getting into the right schools. And New York is a competitive, high-powered city. So people obsess about schools a lot. And um, that was sort of the focus of the pilot to, as like a driver to, to plunge into this world. But um, in my... Life. And just to pause for a second for our listeners who aren't familiar with this, New York is this strange world where when your kid is one and a half years old, you have to start putting in inquiries to get applications for preschools. Otherwise, they're never going to get into the college of their dreams, and it's a little bit insane. It's okay, crazy. So I do think you can like go rogue and still no. I'm just kidding. Do anything, but like yeah, yeah. But people, the the craziness is like so many people really really think that and are so wedded to one school or they're they just jump through hoops so they're sobbing and their whole like identity is pinned to where their kid gets in or something it's like it's very strange but yeah 
And there's almost, um, like, too much pressure being placed on the kids, right? Yeah. I think they're judging the parents, though. I don't think they're judging the kids. Yeah. Really. But, um... Oh, that's true. Because you know, like, they're just shitting in their can, huggies. What can a one-and-a-half-year-old yeah, do? Yeah, they're, wrong? like, sucking their big toe. They're talking... They're grilling us, you know, and looking at our thank-you notes and shit. I have no idea what they look for, but... Um, I actually stumbled upon our admissions lady Googling people once and she quickly like shifted <laughs> Minimized the, mouse. the Yeah, I was like, it's all right. I, I'm just saying hi. Um, but <laughs> I saw a group of kids. I was outside my daughter's preschool and she said, mommy, they were talking with the kids and she said, mommy, why are you the only mommy without red bottoms on your shoes? Oh my god. <laughs> and I, that's like a specific to New York thing. I doubt that's going on in like the red rectangles in the middle, but you know, everyone has their thing. The thing is New York has this there's so much mystique because of the buildings that we live in whereas the rest of America, you know, people always say New York's materialistic, but you always know like people's big white house or the car they drive whereas like we don't know that shit about each other here. So yeah. it's like there it's so it's the New York version of that is like, like out how you're going to fashion. adorn yourself with your bag and your probably shoes and whatever else. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, how did you get into writing? I started writing for Vogue in college, and I which is I, amazing because not every college student is doing that on the side. It was it was a fluky thing because I I spent my summers interning at and then this is how old I am the now defunct Mademoiselle magazine. We used to be a magazine oh. in the eighties and nineties, and I interned there in the summer, and then I interned at MTV and Harper's Bazaar, and so I knew a lot of fashion editors and there was a huge turnover at the time at Connie Nast at Hearst back and forth and so I knew a bunch of people at a pretty young age um just from like slave labor and doing Xerox being a Xerox whore and whatever fetching coffee <laughs> but at one point that's um, not the current acceptable term for intern Xerox whore yeah I mean yeah. just for the record okay <laughs> well they don't have to go make copies anymore everything's digital so That's it's right. much less um a neck down job than it used to be but um I had this editor that I knew and at the time people were really freaked out by Singapore because there was this caning incident with an American kid Michael Fay who's those of you over 40 will remember this but this like shithead American kid spray painted a car or keyed he took a key and like went down a car in Singapore, and they have CCTV everywhere. If you light a cigarette in Singapore, someone can read the brand on the cigarette. It's very Orwellian. And as a result, though, they have very little crime, and you can wear, like, diamond necklaces, like all these guys parade out their mistresses with jewels to show. That's their yardstick, by the way. They go to the raffles, and the, the mistresses, not the wives, the mistresses come in, like, dripping in jewelry. It's so fucked up. Anyway... She was a, a lot of bad press for Singapore, and she said, you know, both writers, like my first and second choice, bagged out of this article. Would you ever want to go to Singapore? And I was like, yeah. So Condé Nast paid for me to go to Singapore, business class, which I had never flown. And I spent like a week in Singapore covering women's beauty regimes and about the trend in plastic surgery there, where when you graduate, you get like less Asian eyes and mm-hmm. I was I thought that was so dark and fucked up like I love an Asian eye I don't know why yeah. they would want to make it more quote-unquote almond yeah but they said no that there are studies in Singapore that people who get that surgery 
marry better and have a higher income and all this shit and it really depressed me actually yeah because i grew up like love yourself you know exactly but it's a big it's a big deal in singapore so i was 20 and then i kind of had that piece ready to go so that when i was a senior i i sent it to other editors and i had a job at interview magazine which is it's a pretty small magazine I think it's pretty much read on the coasts or maybe a handful of cities, but it, it was founded by Andy Warhol. And so I worked there for two years, and then um, I was writing a lot of articles, which I couldn't have done it if I had gone to Vogue or something like that. A job opportunity had come up at Vogue, and I basically knew I'd be booking you know, Cameron Diaz's assistance plane ticket, whereas at interview I was writing features. So um, it was a really hard, yucky two years. I had a really mean boss. Like, Devil Wears Prada, but worse. It was like, Devil Wears Target. And then um, <laughs> and then I quit and started writing a screenplay with my friend who we... She had worked at Harper's Bazaar also for another demon. And we that screenplay went to... Um, was sold as a movie and went to Sundance. It was called Intern. It's really bad. But the New York Times said that the screenplay was good, so we got an agent. Like, something good came out of it. That's awesome. My whole family flew to Utah, and I was like, this is terrible. But that's when I learned the writers are the lowest pieces of amoeba pond scum on the New Jersey shoreline. Writers don't really matter in TV and film. Which is so funny, because without the writers, what would we be watching? Just beautiful people doing nothing, right? Yeah, Yeah, they can rewrite you. They can tell you. You know, there's, there's so many... I think Cooks writers are everything. Yeah. That's sort of the intellect and humor and substance and all of that behind the show. Luckily, I got that later because um, once I started writing my books, it, then it's about the author. Okay. And, you know, the editor, you lean on your editor, but it, there's, they like will revere an author more and delicately tiptoe about notes as suggestions, whereas in TV, they're like, we have a million people who could you replace you. Like, they'll... They can fire you off your own movie and bring in other writers. It's not, you know, it's not really yours. Oh, I didn't realize. Oh, that. yeah. So, in terms of writing as an author of books, how is that different from writing in the TV world? The TV world is so much better. I have to say, I I'm, I had written shows for MTV for the news department when I was young, in my twenties, just to like keep working. I was a freelancer, but it was kind of full time, um, you know, show to show. But it's not the same as comedy writing. I feel like Odd Mom Out was so crackling. It was such funny people. They were so smart. We had eight people the first year, and then we kind of pared it down to five. And that was our tried and true group for the next two seasons. But it's just the camaraderie is so great. And, it, and it'll you'll get an idea, and you can throw it out. There are no bad ideas. It's very much like that brainstormy safe space of spitballing. Mm-hmm. And you can say the stupidest thing. Someone might be like, a really bad version of this is blank. And then somebody else will say like, oh, oh, we could do this. You just build on it until collectively you come up with something. So all the plot points are broken as a group. And then, you know, I go off and write half the scripts and Lara wrote, Lara, we, I mean, we had a really small writer's room. We only had four people writing scripts and they were all women. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Take us a little bit behind the scenes of a writer's room because I feel like that's a very special concept that some people aren't aware of. It's great. And a friend of mine who was in our writer's room, Lindsay Stoddard, who's brilliant, hilarious writer, she is now on a show where she's the only woman. It's all guys. And that tokenism is really much a part of traditional Hollywood writer's rooms. So ours really turned that on its head. I think Jill Soloway had an all-female writer's room also for I Love Dick. But... 
pretty much it's unheard of. It's it's just known that it's a guy's game and there'll be one girl, but then that girl is in a weird position because she has to be the chafe and sort of say, guys, this might be sexist or offensive. And yeah. so they let it slide sometimes because they might be new. And so it just keeps that same cycle going. Whereas uh-huh. ours was, you know, strong, badass for women. And we had a guy who would who was a staff writer. He wasn't writing the scripts, but he gave us ideas and stuff from the guy's point of view. But the four of us were the ones doing the writing. And is it just a constant stream of laughs? Like everybody being funnier than the next yes. person? And All day. We How would, fun. It's so much fun. I mean, it's work, but at the same time, we would pitch ourselves after doubling over laughing, saying like, can you fucking believe we're paid to do this? It's the luckiest thing. It's the best job I've ever had and I don't I fear I won't have anything like it again because of that network freedom because they Bravo didn't really fully have a system in place to check us so we just were like the lunatics running the asylum I feel like there needs to be an odd mom out the movie yeah I would love that I don't know if someone wants to produce it I'm available okay I feel like somebody's gonna call you because you know we need that right now I wish I wished we got a season four because I would have just Rocked the bar mitzvah year. Seventh grade in New York City is like, you cannot make this shit up. The yeah. toasts I've heard, the ridiculousness. And I mean, I'm Jewish, so I can say this, but I was like, please don't let anyone video these things and ship it to ISIS because it's like a recruitment tool. <laughs> um, what, what do you think made you, you know, so in Odd Mom Out, which we've kind of been talking about with this writer's room, you you were the odd mom out on the show, right? So for those of you who haven't seen it, it was this sea of beautiful, blonde, Upper East Side. Tits on sticks, $1,000 strollers. Exactly. Birkin bags, the works, the blowouts, the, you know, super duper high heels. And um, you're gorgeous, but you have stark, dark hair. Um, very pale. Very Thank beautiful, you for pale gorgeous. skin. I feel like Hagatus is Maximus, but oh my god! And I was like five years older than all those actresses. Or yeah, ten, or ten. So, yeah, so I thought it was a really interesting decision that you portrayed yourself as the odd mom out. So what made you? What makes? What made you the odd mom out? I've always been the odd mom out. I mean, I had Sadie when I was twenty-eight, and I was none of my my friends were like dancing on tables at Bungalow Eight. They were like blowing a French motorcycle guy. Like, it, no one was having kids. And and in America, 28 is perfectly normal, but in New York, it's a little young. Most people are 30 and up. Um, 30 through 45, you know? Like, yeah. I have friends who are 45 having kids. So, um, I didn't there are a lot of get really married until I was 31, yeah. Yeah, there are just so many ambitious women and so many incredible careers in the city that people often put that off. So I showed up in these baby classes, and I had no friends, and there were very clicky groups who had like met in Lamaze or even high school friends that got pregnant together and they had this whole life together and I felt a little bit like I was an interloper and at one baby class Sadie was running around at Ballet Academy East and I said honey come sit down um Indian style and this these two moms went and started whispering and I said what and she goes that's very offensive you don't say Indian style you say crisscross applesauce that's so funny. That and I you was like, that. okay, sorry, I didn't get the memo. Like, now it's more, this is 15 years ago. Like, yeah. I always said Indian style. I didn't think of it as racist. 
And I had my period and I just like got up to go pee and I burst into tears. I was oh. sobbing and I was like, I told my husband, he starts laughing. He's like, are you fucking kidding me? You're like crying about this. But I was like, I'm hormonal. And they're like these moms that are all the kids have a bow the size of a helicopter propeller and they're all decked out. And I look like Urban Outfitters shat on me. And um, basically... I came home and told the story, and then the next night, we had a black tie benefit at the Natural History Museum. We were mm -hmm. guests of this friend of mine, and we walked by the diorama with all the Native Americans, and he goes, look, honey, the Native Americans are sitting crisscross applesauce. <laughs> um, but I realized then I had this idea for Momzilla's, for the book, and that this world, instead of letting it get to me, could be something funny. So, you know, I would go to these trunk shows that I was invited to, and people were buying, like, $475 smock dresses for a one-year-old that they're just gonna like diarrhea on and and wear for three minutes right because they it's grow more out for, like the them. christmas card picture from yeah. printery at oyster bay or whatever so i don't know i just felt like my only coping mechanism was to laugh about it and i stay a little bit removed and as it turned out the the friends that i made and i did make friends for life but they were the ones like me who were kind of like one foot in, one foot out, but they didn't make mommy land their whole world. And they didn't drop their best friends and bridesmaids to get this like new group of mom bots. I never did that. I never, I'm still best friends with my five bridesmaids. That's awesome. Yeah. I feel like the friends that you make at that stage in life, like for me, my college friends and friends from my early 20s, those are like the friends who really get you and know you. Yeah, it's true, but unfortunately because of whatever, like diaspora from graduate school or marriage, people scatter and you wind up just geographically and, and you know, proximity breeds intimacy, but you, you wind up making these parent friends and some of them are these like disposable friendships where you, you leave the preschool and you're like, bye, but it's it's really weird. You have to date couples. You like try them on for size and see if you're into them and then things might seem okay and then something happens and you're like, oh, they're Trump supporters. That's over. <laughs> right. It's nice while it lasts. Yeah. Goodbye. Um, to me. So now that you are doing a bunch of other things, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about what some of your current projects are. Well, actually, it's funny you should ask because we met because of Georgia Louise, my facialist. Yay! And um, I'm writing, I just, the, tomorrow I think it comes out, I did a piece for The Hollywood Reporter on the Kate Blanchett penis facial. Uh -huh. So I was like, is there going to be jizz on my face? Like, what's a penis facial? But it turns out, so Georgia pioneered this facial. And they take like dick tops from circumcisions and get the stem cells out. And that's <laughs> you know, why I have this lovely glow. She was on my podcast, glow. but she described the facial a little di differently. Yeah. But I feel like you've added some color to it. So yeah. So I have like Korean baby dick tops on my face right now. It, but it, people it see it looks you. good. Right? Yeah. Who knew? It's kind of your look. Yeah. Rub me, and my face will turn into the size of your wall. Just kidding. But um, yeah, they called out of the blue and asked me to do that. And then I'm doing a piece for InStyle right now and a piece for um, Paper Magazine, which I love. Oh, Paper Magazine it's is really so cool, cool magazine. Right? I love it. I love writing for them. I love the editors. So that's fun. And then I've been working on this. I had been doing for the last six months a reboot script of The Monsters with Seth Meyers. Um, but NBC is not going to make it. So I don't know what's going to happen with it. It might be a cartoon. Universal's trying to shop it elsewhere but I'm sort of like in this happy limbo of doing my freelance stuff and waiting to see what my next show will be because I want to sort of do my own New York something else here 
or write a movie. I'm not sure. That's so awesome. Yeah, it's been really fun. Um, So tell us a little bit about your kind of signature beautiful porcelain skin. And just for everyone who's listening to this um, audio and not watching it visually, uh, Jill is extremely beautiful and she has what the, are you talking i'm she getting has, you lasik for hanukkah she, she has thanks um she has the kind of skin that i want everyone to have which is not perturbed by uv damage radiation sun exposure i had melanoma so i had skin yeah. cancer in eighth grade and that was when i stopped going to the sun done that was it and then I had melanoma, like where the sun don't even shine near my vag, and I had to get all the lymph nodes out of my vag, and I have a foot long scar, um, and it was stage they said two or three, and Daniel Coit from Sloan Kettering was like the head of this kind yeah. of tumor, it saved my life, and he Literally. said if you hadn't found this, you would have been dead within three years. It's a very virulent kind. It's a kind Bob Marley died of. And it's often in places that are not exposed to sun. So I don't know if it's just genetic or what, but I didn't want to exacerbate the situation by, like, even laying out at all. So I've been very careful, but I don't really... This is controversial. I don't wear sunblock. I don't think that sunblock even works. I just think, like, the only sunblock that works is a building, and you just have to stay indoors. It actually is true. I mean... SPF does work, but it doesn't. It doesn't work in the sense that it solves the problem. No, and I think it like, like ameliorates it. Yeah, but it, it I don't want any of it. Right, exactly. So, I, I, so if just, I'm outside during those hours, I'm wearing a big fucking hat and like Greta Garbo sunglasses, and that's it. But I'm really. It kind of suits me because I'm an indoorsy person. I hate the out of doors. I hate sports. I think sports are kind of dumb if you don't like them, but a lot of people do them anyway and like make their kids do them and. I just would, I think it's better for them to like read and shit. I don't know. I never played sports. That's another article I'm doing actually right now. <laughs> I'm um, an indoor person too. I think it's fine to be an indoor person. What the fuck is this American ethos of like, get back on the field? <laughs> like, who cares? These people get like personal lacrosse coaches and it's, it's weird. Like all these kids, they're, you're not going to the Olympics. Like, calm down. Right. It's interesting, especially raising kids, because I feel like there's a huge emphasis on getting your kids on the field. And, you know, I get that. Maybe if I had more natural um, sports athletic ability, it would resonate more with me. Yeah, zero. Yeah. (laughs) I get it. I totally get what you mean. Um, What's something that you value now that you didn't appreciate as much at the start of your career? Um, I would say time with my parents. I am so, like, I remember those years. It was the start of my career, but it was also, like, husband hunting and being with my friends and just, like, being out. And I sort of felt like I've always been so close to my parents. But now I worship them and I appreciate them because so many, I'm 43, and friends of mine are burying their parents, and I'm so not ready. And I'm kind of addicted to my parents. I, I just talked to them before I came here. Like, I'm constantly... They live two blocks away. They're over all the time. I just really rely on them. And I never took them for granted, really, but I really value their advice now. And, you know, when you're younger, I think you're just like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm hanging out with my friends. But now I'm just like, I want to have dinner with my mommy and daddy. <laughs> like, there's something so safe and protected. And I love being the middle generation with I have my parents and I have my kids. And they love each other. And, you know, it's just, like, a great time. And I know that it's fleeting. That's why I just freak. Because my dad's turning 80, and he's a super young 80. But I have really close friends whose parents didn't make it to that age. So I just am very aware of 
the generation of, you know, the parents' mortality and all that. So Right, and life doesn't make us any promises, and who knows? Right. And I can croak first. Next. I could be hit by a car on Park Avenue leaving here. Well, I'm very much appreciative of time, I guess, yeah. is my answer. Yeah. In general. I think that's a really nice answer. And health. Answer. And health. Yeah. Because without that, what do you have? Nada. Yeah. Um, and I guess you know that firsthand as that's being right. someone who was a cancer survivor and, yeah. and at such a young age. Do you feel like that colored your young adulthood? A hundred percent. Having to go through that when you're only 13 years old? I was, no, because that one wasn't like death-ish. It was like a, some, not squamous cell carcinoma, but it was some that you're not going to die or anything. Okay. The, what the, about the melanoma? The melanoma was at 34. Okay. And that freaked the shit out of me because I had three little kids and I felt like I can't die. Like, I just can't die. But the, women in their 30s die all the time of cancer. And I just, I was so freaked out. It was very alarming to me. But I think in a weird way, it, I, it this sounds ridiculous to anyone who's not me, but I don't think I would have had my show without that experience. I think, like, it made me kind of take my life by the balls and take more risks. Because I, I, I've always had a lot of chutzpah, but I just didn't give a shit about fear anymore. I just felt like I was told that I had a 15% chance of dying and I, he, I started crying and huge. he goes, yeah. I said one five, not five oh. And I'm like, but it's harder to get into nursery school. <laughs> like I figured that's a major chance that like for a 34 year old to say, cause I said, what percent chance will I die? Um, and then from that point on, I just feel like I did what I wanted to do and I, it made my voice stronger. I wrote about, I wrote an essay collection called sometimes I feel like a nut and one of the essays in it is called tumor humor and the whole essay collection was not my idea it was my editor's idea and I said I don't know if I could write that she said no I've read your articles in Vogue or Town and Country and you could easily write a collection of all your your musings and I said I don't know I don't I don't know what I'd write about it'd probably be too boring and then the shit went down and I was in the hospital thinking that's my first essay it's just about this experience and it's it's a funny essay but it's you know, I'm gonna check it out. Yeah, you should check I it out. I can't wait. And then, I, and then all, they all just came pouring out of me. It was like Tourette's. I just wrote the whole book really quickly in six months. And once that book came out, my career changed because I knew that that was the balsamic reduction of me, and everything else had been watered down. And I didn't want to do fiction anymore. I just wanted to do real stories. And On My Mount really grew out of that book. And then the sort of sequel, um, Sprinkle Glitter on My Grave, which came after. But it was. I don't know. They all are the same voice and the voice of the show. So I feel like the novels are so distant to me now because it's not as much like the real me, kind of, because you're hiding behind characters. Yeah. Do you feel like writing is a cathartic experience for you? Totally. I feel so... I have such better days when I sit down and shit something out, even if it's, you know, like for an interview for a blog or something. I try to help moms, like, if they are entrepreneurs or they want something for their website or whatever I'll, I'll do stuff like that if I'm not working and I always feel like it just makes your day a better day and it makes me a better mom because I feel like I accomplished something and, and I also you're creating something you're like putting stuff into the world which I think is so awesome about creative fields it's true I mean even this sounds so cheese and it's a cliche but even if like a couple people laugh at it and say like thank you I was having a shitty day and I laughed like that's worth it that's great yeah what does it look like when you're writing? Are you like in your laptop? Are you at the library? Are you? I'm at home on my laptop and I'm fully dressed in tights, heels, boots, you know, whatever. Red bottom I, on the shoes? No <laughs> red bottoms. I don't spend 1200 on hooves, but I definitely dress. I think 
the whole image of the writer in sweatpants thing works for some people, but not for me. I like to think of it as a like a, a job. And I even used to go leave my house, go get, now I do a school run, so it separates it. But I, even when I had no children, I would go to the coffee place, get my coffee just to, and then come back and be, okay, now I'm at work. I like that. I try to get my kids even on weekends to like dress up and put on like a buttoned shirt and everything, which, you know, some may object to. But I feel like if you sort of get ready to participate in life, then you're going to participate a little more meaningfully. I, I agree. I, I For me, I could never write in my pajamas. People always say to me, you're so lucky it's snowing. You can just like sit in your nightie. And I was like, no, I, I have like a blouse <laughs> on and all this shit because I just want to feel prepared for it. And then when I'm done, by the way, I might like strip that off and put on sweats. But I, when I'm writing, I'm always dressed for my day. Oh, that's really funny. Yeah, it's weird, but it works. So a little bit, a few minutes ago, you were talking um, a little bit about some of the terrible experiences you had early on with mean people who you were working for. Um, and I wanted to hear a little bit more about really challenging moments in your career, whether it was an evil boss or a roadblock or a rejection letter. You know, for the listeners, people, you're so amazing and successful and what you've done seems so unattainable. Um, so people want to hear a little bit about the harder parts of it and what wasn't going well for you. Such a good question. Well, as I sort of touched on, my first job out of college was the worst. I The two years out of college were so depressing that I remember um, when 9-11 happened, I had a friend, we both were miserable at our jobs and we would meet for late dinners and we were both like, slaving. I had met my husband luckily by then. Um, we were together for like a year and a half at that point and we actually got engaged like right after 9-11 but I remember thinking what if this had happened while I had still been at that job? You know it's something because my friend who I would meet for dinner was in that building. Sorry that's mm -hmm. the key part. He was not in the two towers. He was in number seven which also collapsed and he had quit a week before. And he moved to San Francisco. He's like, I this is such a grind. I'm so unhappy. And like, what if I what if I die after like three years of hell? Like for what? I'm suffering. I'm verbally abused. I'm working till two in the morning. For you know, when you prorate pro rate the money, it's actually like less than minimum wage because they just take advantage with young people. So you have to work these crazy hours and come in Saturdays, and your salary is your salary. There's no like overtime. So. Um, I remember thinking like I gotta get out of here I'm gonna drown here and when I left I you know I really liked the schedule of having a job it was just too much but I got really scared like oh I'm just another asshole writing a screenplay there's no way that I'm gonna sell a screenplay and you know did I sell to a huge studio no it was like a local independent company in New York um, I was still really happy. We had sent it for notes, like through a friend of a friend, and then the producer wanted to buy it. But um, that was no picnic either. I, having your work then get butchered and getting so excited to fly to Sundance and then see it and start crying in the bathroom and like Mormons were handing me tissues. I was literally sobbing because it just wasn't what I had imagined. Um, so that was also a setback. And then, weirdly, in my MTV, um, I worked on the show at MTV and there were. 10 of us, one other girl, eight guys, and I was the youngest. I was the youngest by two years. I think I was 27, 28, I was 28. 
And there were all these like 36 year old rejuvenile guys with like vintage clash t-shirts and messenger bags and the whole hipster thing was burgeoning at the time. And I came in pregnant. I was about what you are now, you know, six months pregnant. And I had, I didn't dress in fucking like, you know, maternity clothes. I had like a cool t-shirt and I had, you know, I looked 20, I looked young. Yeah. And they shat and they never hired me again. Really? Yeah. And I was, I didn't, I was a freelancer, so I couldn't like sue for discrimination or anything. And I'm not litigious anyway, but my boss, who's like 36 was like, are you fucking pregnant? And I said, yeah. And he's like, are you married? And I said, yeah, I'm married. I've been married for a year. And he said, dude, you're having a baby? Like, how old are you? And I said, I'm 28. And I remember them all being thinking like aliens were... Because these are people... It's just like a different culture for, for me. Like, I I had already called off an engagement and lived with my, you know, ex-primate and thought, I'm never going to live with someone again. Like, no ring, no ring. <laughs> Wait, but, I have to, going forward, refer to... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but a lot of these guys were like, I live in Brooklyn. I've been with my girlfriend for nine years. Like, chill. Yeah. These are not the kind of women who are like, hey, propose. I have cobwebs on my uterus. They're like, relaxed and having a joint and writing for MTV. And they didn't care yeah. about, like, those. I just had a different time clock, I guess. Um, but they never called me again. Never called me again. And I said to the woman that worked there, like, were they really freaked out, like, when I left? And she said, yeah, they were pretty alarmed. And then years later, I ran into one of the guys, and they said, yeah, well, we just thought, like, you were in, you know, you are in, like, mom town. Like, you were, you were in that world. And I said, that's such bullshit. Like, I'm 28. Totally. I'm a, you can still be hip and normal, but people sort of feel like your sexuality's gone, your humor's gone, now you're a mom. So they're picturing these, like, you know, Betty Crocker people with oven mitts or some shit. I don't know, but it was really depressing to me. And I was shocked that I didn't get brought back. But I, it was because of my baby. I feel like that stuff happens all the time. And it's situations like you're describing where you can't, you can't really necessarily, quote, prove it. But, you know, people, I, I just people knew it kind of got start to think of you as a non-entity if you mom track yourself. Like, the fact that that's even a term to mom track. That's so Like, funny. can't you just reproduce and create human life while still having your own brain and other interests? I, okay, I, when Craigslist first started, I was in my fourth floor walk-up with my baby. And Nine Inch Nails, I got an alert that Nine Inch Nails, my favorite band, was having, like, a surprise pop-up show in New York at Roseland, which is a really small venue for a band that big. So, I mean, Trent Reznor does, like, MSG or whatever. So I, like, was running to get this thing that was sold out, whatever, of course, because it's so it was one of those Ticketmaster, like, cartel bullshit things. Right. So I stay on, I tra- track this whole thing on Craigslist, and this guy said, there, everything was exorbitant, just the, the scalping. And this guy posted the day of, saying, I just got food poisoning at lunch. I work at J.P. Morgan, the first person to come, just with like the face value of the ticket, um, to get to 48th and Broadway, I will sell you my ticket. So it was literally a race, <laughs> which is how I get that got the idea for the Hamilton episode in Odd Mom Out, where we're like planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah. So I which threw my baby into the stroller, and I ran. I ran as fast <laughs> as I could. I wasn't going to like focus, like be a slave to traffic. We ran with this thing all the way to, with the pram to, um, 
to Morgan Stanley and I go in, I'm on my cell, I'm like, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And I'm so panicking that like everybody in that lobby is competing with me for the tickets. <laughs> and he's like, okay, I'm here too. Where are you? And I was like, I'm in the lobby, like right by this fern thing. And he's like, I don't see you. I just see something like mom. <laughs> and then I said, yeah, that's me. So I turned, I was like, hi. And he goes, you're buying my nine inch nails tickets and he's like are you bringing the baby and I was like are you fucking crazy no I'm not bringing the baby like I'm not Beyonce who puts headphones on my child at a concert I just leave them at home um but anyway it was it's just prejudgment is so much part of the psyche so much right I know it's very interesting and um it's interesting to also think about that in 2018 today like you know as you mentioned I'm six and a half months pregnant with my sixth kid and and you're a fetus you're so young like oh, you thanks. really I'm look not. so young oh, thanks that's nice your pregnancy is good too. well I have some like perks of my job that's um, true so that helps a little but um but I feel like you know it's so interesting to want to try to be a woman of substance and contribute in whatever kind of field you're contributing in whether it's mine or yours which are different but um they're you know, we both want to be at the top of our games in whatever we're doing, um, but it's so interesting to have the experience of feeling like the fact that you're reproducing on the side ch totally changes that or it upsets somebody's worldview. Another depressing moment, <laughs> I'm like, while we're on the subject, <laughs> um, I, when we were filming season one of Odd Mom Out, I had a really hard time because... I was a stay-at-home mom for like 11 years, basically. I was a double agent because I was working, and I was right. I wrote 10 books, but I was around. Which so is people, nothing to sneeze at, right? No, but it wasn't like going to an office because right. I was writing okay. from home. So I was still like at pickup and all that. And then suddenly I'm on the set for, you know, 14, 16 hours a day. And I forget what it was. Like my son was being an asshole at school or something, and they had to call. They always call the mom. They never call the dad. And I was literally like filming with all these people there and I had all these missed calls and they're like, Mrs. Carpenter, you know, this is important. We need to, he said this thing or whatever. And I was sort of like, this is, why, why do I have, my husband's just sitting, he has his own big office. He can talk on the phone, <laughs> but they had to pull me off the set. You know, they just kept calling and it was this weird guilt thing that they, that they couldn't reach me. And I sort of wanted to say like, well, I'm working right now. You can try the dad instead of calling me seven times. It was just really upsetting because I felt like, why does the buck only stop with the mom? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's ever going to change. Yeah. I, I have that too, where I'll miss calls from preschool while I'm in surgery. And I'll be like, sorry, I was doing something, but I'm calling now. Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, I guess that's the way it is. They, don't, they think the dad's doing something more important. Well, um... What? So I have some more fun questions for okay. you. Okay. Um, They're all fun. Uh, I, this is so interesting. I like actually find your this. life You're Barbara really... Walters. Oh. I love Barbara Walters. Yeah, She's like too. such that a boss. Nice. Yeah. Um, your life is so interesting and it's fun to chat with someone who has so, so many funny and articulate thoughts. And <laughs> I feel like you swear the way I want to. My alter ego talks like you. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a potty mouth. Sorry. Um, no, I like it. Um, Tell us the craziest thing that you've witnessed a momzilla do. Um, I went to a party. Okay, well, for, it started with one of those like music together classes in mm -hmm. the church basement, and I brought my kid and this mom, 
who is like a billionaire hedge fund person started talking to me and she had so I'm not knocking like the fillers but she was so embalmed and she's her lips were so big she had like a vagina on her face it was like labia <laughs> and she was like can I talk to you for a second it's not the look that I'm going for no it's not Dr. Deb Gans world but she said can I talk to you for a second I just want to say that the way you dress your daughter can tell that we're kindred spirits and I wanted you to be invited to our party. And she handed me like a card stock that was so thick. It was like, you know, maybe four pieces of cardboard put together. And it was like a huge 10 by 10 inch square engraved, engraved. And with like borders and this like tissue in the liner, it was nice. It made my wedding invitation look like Kinko's. And I was like, okay. And I open it and it was a huge, rager for 300 people in a hotel ballroom oh my god and she was like we're gonna have corps de ballet from new york city ballet we have the cast of annie broadway we have plaster casts of your children's hand and feet we have a sushi bar we have a dj like it was nicer than my wedding and i shit you not <laughs> and i tried to describe this to people and no one could believe it like it is just it, it was so like outlandish on earth. it was but like the weird thing it was so like there was something depressing about it. Like for example, they weren't there when we got there, and I'm like, where are they? I have to. Harry never met the people because I went to the class, and so we're looking for them, looking for them, and I'm like, do you know like where the fuck these people are? Because it was like a half an hour in, and they're like, I think they're doing like the entrance thing, and I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is a two year old's birthday. So then these guys come out, shirtless male models, ripped like shredded muscles, <laughs> shirtless with like Aladdin pants, like harem <laughs> pants. And they had trumpeteer people, like trumpeters, going do-do-do. And these four shirtless guys are carrying the family in a Cleopatra tent. <laughs> you you cannot make this shit up. The family, and they're on like pillows with gold tassels, like tufted oh with a Cleopatra tent, and they were carried into the party. What the actual fuck? Yeah, and then sometimes I hear stories like that, and I'm like, you know what? I feel a little bit bad that for my daughter's birthday, we just baked cupcakes and sang happy birthday at the table. But she doesn't know. On the she's other like hand, she's laying cable right. in her huggies. <laughs> right. Um, okay, that's a really good... I, I feel like I don't think I can top that story. So I don't know if anyone can. I don't know if don't anyone think, ever like, could. You know, Kate Middleton throws a party like I mean, yeah. you know, that's just ridiculous. But, you know, <coughs> it is a little absurd. Right? I think it's only like an Arab beast who does that. I feel like normal people... That's like trying too hard or something. Yeah. And what's the point, right? Well, then my friend who stayed friends with them, because I was sort of like, okay, bye. This other mom that I know kind of stayed in their orbit. And they had these dinner parties where there were, there were, had people wear tails. Tails, like in a cartoon. They had the white tie and tails, and then they had a piano player at a grand piano, like tickling the ivories. And they walked down the marble staircase. It's almost like they had a book on, like, how to be a rich person. <laughs> so weird. It's very interesting. Yeah, but yeah, they're tacky, you know. Um, they have like those faucets that are gold swans that the the handles are wings, and then the swan vomits out the water. Yeah, right. Yeah, really, but classy. like beautiful vomit. Yeah, not regular beautiful vomit. New York tap water vomit. Um, tell us a little bit about some of your tattoos and maybe a story behind one of your favorite ones. Well, funny you should ask. My melanoma thing started me on this course of rebellion. I don't know what I was rebelling against. I had such a happy childhood and, you know, a really cool husband who didn't try to control me too much. 
But something snapped after that. Like I, I had my head really long hair like you and I cut a foot off and Harry was like, you cut your hair? You didn't even tell me. I'm like, I don't need your permission. Like I was in a really combative <laughs> wild moment and I decided to get um, a tattoo. I got my first tattoo at 35. And then That's this so at 36. Cool. Yeah, I wasn't like a drunk 17-year-old getting like a fucking Grateful Dead bear well, on my I ass feel crack. Like people, I got people cool shit. think you're dead when you're 30. Like you, you, you there is. That's why know, I did it. I, I love so much of, so many of your stories because they all take place post 30. Yeah. And then I got these for my three kids, little hearts. And then um, these swords I got after the last presidential election. I was feeling very down and powerless. And so this one is Wonder Woman's sword. And this one is Inigo Montoya's sword from The Princess Bride. And that's my armor. So I feel like when I get upset about things, instead of just like venting on Twitter, which I sometimes do, I just feel protected by my tattoos. And I have New York on my back, like the New York Times font, but without the word Times, just New York. And I don't think I'm done yet, I gotta say. And I got my tragus pierced at 40. So, you know, I just like, it's a work in progress, but I feel like I... My way of dealing is just like, oh, and also the weirdest thing that I did, because I am such a gun control activist, I got a gun and I joined a gun club and I just started shooting targets just to like get some of my stress out because I just was, you know, and for a Jewish New Yorker, I'd never been in therapy. And so I went to like my first therapist at 37 and I went for four years and it was helpful, like just especially then facing now being on television and just certain roadblocks along the way. She was really helpful. And then I kind of graduated. She was like, okay, bye. You don't need me. How did you deal with all the (laughs) scrutiny that came with being on TV for the first time? And did you experience internet trolls and people being cruel and kind of the gap between being a successful writer and then all of a sudden being a major public figure? I... I didn't give a shit. I was trolled all the time. I mean, people were like, you're too pale. You need a tan. You look like you're going to die or whatever. You have cellulite. I didn't give a shit because I'm sure they're like a troll in a basement in Iowa and they're, who knows what they look like. I just don't care. I don't care. And I chose to dance on purpose to show my cellulite. That was the whole point is like, I'm a mom. I, I think it would be annoying if a mom was doing underwear dance with her kids and had like flawless thighs. I would want to smash that mom. Yeah. So I didn't mind my cellulite jiggling. Right. So I really didn't care about the trolls. It was more, a bit, you know, like trying to, I didn't have an agent, for example. I didn't want an agent. I didn't want to be in the business. There was something that made me feel dirty about it. And then by season three, I decided to kind of succumb and get one just for my own protection. There were like certain things that someone could go to bat for me that's harder for me to do. Um, but, you know, it was it was interesting. There were times like the first premiere of the first show where I felt a little exposed. You know, I had done a lot of press and I was doing, and I don't have stage fright, so I just went on the morning show. You know, I was happy going on, Jimmy Fallon, like the guests who are way famous were more nervous. Like, I don't care. I just don't care. To me, it's fun. And I love Jimmy and Seth, and it just seems like hanging out. Um, But I don't know. There were other times where I felt very exposed or vulnerable with like, you know, like the critics were all really actually generous, but sometimes we would get like lumped in with other shows that I didn't, you know, like reality things with Bravo. And it just, it was a little worrisome that I I was trying to do something different and not be put in that bucket. Yeah. 
Okay. I mean, I feel like that's a really good lesson also. So for everyone who's listening out there, just don't give a blank. I, when I had, I had breakfast with my best friend who's really named Vanessa, like the show. And I was sort of feeling a little fragile and she said, you got to get your thick crocodile skin on and pretend that this lotion, it just pretend you're putting on your crocodile skin and that's going to, it was before I had these tattoos, but I remember now these are that for me, but I just remember her being like, you, you got to deal with this. Like this is, this is on. Yeah. Cause people can be crazy. They can be really mean crazy. and cruel and super nuts. They're nuts. Yeah. I get nuts every single day. I'm always surprised by that. Yeah, I'm always every day. You know, you are sort of in a different stratosphere where you're an actual recognizable public figure. I'm like a regular doctor and a mom and a private citizen. Do do people troll you all the time? And it is insanity that I, I something that I had never mentally prepared for. Does it sting you? Does it get to you? Lately, I kind of don't care. Okay. And good. I think that I, I feel like it's taken me like a little bit of time to get to that point. But it takes I a love, little time. I love your advice about that because now I'm like, this is a really sad, pathetic person. Do you want everyone to like you or do you want like a cult of cool people to love you? I just want the cool people to like me. Right. So <laughs> everyone who cares else, about like... those losers? They're like <laughs> racist, homophobes, you know, like, do you know the kind of trolling I get from people who are like horrible people? I mean, like... Uh, yeah, they're same. terrible anti-Semites. You know, like who cares what they think? I don't really care what people think, except for the people I respect. And the people I respect are down. Like they get me. Yeah, yeah. And you either yeah. get me or you don't. Same with any human being in any relationship. But I don't try to please the masses because I think if you do that, then you're like kind of wishy-washy. And then who are you anyway? You're just sort of a mirror for them. Right? Yeah, I don't want to. I'd rather adding your own. I'd voice, rather be but... polarizing and have like a devoted small group of people who get it than having everyone kind of like me like vanilla ice cream or something i want to be coffee bar crunch yeah although i like vanilla too i don't really yeah Uh, well you know i'd rather starve (laughs) so you have been such a funny guest i feel like we could keep you here all night i mean you're awesome um, you're natural you're a natural and I, i mean i have so many more things to ask you but our time is wrapping up um as a thank you for participating in our podcast, I wanted to gift you any product from Scientific Beauty. Oh, so that's your line. That's my line. So badass, you have your own line. And if there's anything that's of interest to you, you know, just let me know. But we have like, you know, some amazing products. I don't know if there's anything You're so that nice. comes to mind. I'm so I will take a gander at your wares. I okay, feel like awesome. you are so generous, and you, it's unnecessary because I would do it for no reason. Well, I mean, I'm just so pleased to have you here. And, you know, finally to close, because this is Beauty Bosses, I wanted to ask you what beauty means to you. I think it just means, you know, being relaxed and happy. I think, you know, you you do the best with what you got. But I, to me, I think my mom is the most beautiful and she's 66. And she just, she's just relaxed in who she is. She's so calm and happy. And she'll get agitated sometimes, but it, it doesn't take over her face. She's just a, such a feminine, stylish, classic beauty. And I, I really admire how she approaches beauty, which is just in that enjoyment of a spritz of perfume or a, like a lipstick and just enjoying everything. She, she really like enjoys food and music and lives life to the fullest. And to me, that's the most beautiful. You can be two pounds and perfect looking, 
but have no soul and not want to eat anything or, you know, bad in bed or whatever the fuck. I don't know. But <laughs> there are just so many people who are so joyless. Yeah. That even if they're way ten times prettier than other people, they just don't What's radiate that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then finally, what does being a boss mean to you? Because you've paved a lot of roads for a lot of different kinds of women and men interested in comedy, interested in writing, interested in, um, you know, TV and kind of being a cool voice in society in 2018. So what does that mean to you? Well, on, on Odd Mom Out, we had, you know, about 150 people. And what made me so happy is all these guys who um, had worked in TV for decades always said, this is the happiest set I've been on. And it comes from the top down. And thank you for learning our names. And, I, and very early on, I said to someone in one department, you know, in the makeup department, what's that guy in the camera department? And they're like, I don't know. And right away I said, no, we're getting a Facebook, like a printed booklet for everybody here and everyone's going to know each other's names. And we went out for drinks on Fridays and everyone said, I've never been on a set where there's, where the, the person who created the show knows every single person's name, every last production assistant. And I was like, well, that's fucked up. You should know every name. I mean, listen, like I, I was, I did a cameo on Bad Mom's Christmas and there were like 500 people on that. So uh -huh. <laughs> it can't work with a big studio movie, but I think as best as you can as a boss, even though I never really liked that word because I felt like I didn't, I don't know, it felt like too major. But um, I think You're just major. making everybody feel special and that yeah. their task, whatever they're doing, is part of the whole and we can't do it without them and that that's important and they're part of a family. So that that's something that I always wanted in my jobs. And so I feel like anyone who worked on the set of Odd Mom Out would tell you that they felt the part of a family. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm proud of that. I'm I'm amazed to hear it. Um, well, thank you so thank much you. for being You're here. You're a rock star. Six kids, thriving practice, beauty line. You have it all. Well, you have it all too, and I think that's kind of cool that everyone can have it all in their own way. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for being here. My I flesh. can't wait to hear about all of your new cool stuff and read all your new um, articles and everything. Oh yeah, I'll send you my out. penis facial one. Too. Yeah, <laughs> send me that. And um, uh, thank you again.